Well, good morning, church. This week, I was in Southern California for school. In class, I'm nearing the end of doing classes. It feels like the degree will never, ever really end. Uh, But I will be finishing uh, classes, seminars this semester, then on to a 15-hour exam over everything that I've learned in the program. So you could be praying for that. I will fail that, and then I'll retake it again uh, six months from now. It'd be nice if I didn't fail it. So please pray that I wouldn't, that somehow God would would, uh, call to mind everything that I've studied in the last, oh, I don't know, dozen years of my life. Uh, and then uh, after that will be the dissertation, which is a uh, long, good, good two-year project. I can't wait to get on it, actually, and, but uh, you, can, um, you can pray. But I uh, thought much about you and prayed for you while I was gone. Um, I love being a pastor at this church and being able to uh, shepherd you, even though I, I joke with people back home in Spokane and say, you know, I feel like, uh, they're like, How, how's Texas? Um, well, the, I mean, the state or, or how, how I'm doing. And, and I, I said, you know, it's so good. And I, I feel like there's just one pastoral blunder after another. And they are patient with me and gracious to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. So you are a, a beloved flock and I am thankful for you. Well, let me, uh, let me do this. Let me actually, I need to pray one more time. I feel especially uh, needy for the Lord's help. So let me pray once more and then we will dive in. Oh Lord, we all come to you as people just dust, easily distracted, easily frazzled, always, always, always in need, whether we realize it or believe it or not, Lord, and we come to you as people, temporal, created, people who desperately need your grace. And I pray, Lord, as we talk about the life and thought and ministry and legacy and theology of the reformer John Calvin, Lord, I pray that we would be able to use his life as a lens through which we see more clearly who you are. I pray that his life and ministry and the things that, that you ordained for him would only inspire in us a greater zeal to be more recklessly abandoned to the global cause of the king. So, Lord, I need you to help me to preach. And Lord, these people need you to help them to hear and listen and to be gripped by the truth of your word and to be transformed always and only for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, most people in the world know something about God but far less people in the world have truly encountered God. What I mean is people who have facts and stats and intellectual awareness about God are a dime a dozen, but people who are captivated by what they see, they're a little more rare. Because the question is, what what happens to a man? What happens to a woman who encounters the towering majesty of God found in the pages of Scripture. What happens to a man, what what happens to a woman when they behold the sheer, raw holiness of the God who never had a beginning? What happens to the soul that has a head-on collision with the soul-paralyzing beauty of who God is? What happens to the person who stands naked and vulnerable before the God who spoke galaxies into existence? What happens to that person? I'll tell you what happens. They live like John Calvin lived. (laughs) They live like John Calvin lived. Because here's a man with centuries of enemies and critics who hated his guts. And here's a man with centuries of admirers who loved his guts. And if there's anything that could be said about John Calvin, it's that John Calvin was a man who knew God. Here is a man who lived with a profound God consciousness and who knew that no matter where he was, he was standing on holy ground. Why? Because God was there. 
See, John Calvin was lots of things in his tumultuous and chaotic life. He was a reformer, a pastor, an author, a theologian, a husband, a father, and a preacher. But first and foremost, he was a man gripped by the supreme majesty of God found in the pages of Scripture. And what it unleashed in his life was a passion to spread that glory to the very ends of the earth. And the life and the ministry and the influence and the impact of John Calvin is exactly where we're going this morning because you know this is Reformation Week, which means we're celebrating what's known as the Protestant Reformation, which means 500 and now three years ago, we are celebrating when the lamp of the gospel of sovereign grace was relit after centuries of darkness. I mean when the gospel was rediscovered amidst the the rubble of a thousand years of man-made traditions and superstitious beliefs. I mean one of the most triumphant and important moments, not only in church history, but even in human history. And it's true, lots of people added their own fuel to the fire of the Reformation, but it almost doesn't compare to the buckets of gasoline poured onto those flames by John Calvin. And the reason why we're doing this, I mean, the reason why we're talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther and John Calvin is because I'll have you know, the Reformation, it ain't over. By a long shot, it is not even close. The Reformation has now been handed down to us. It's now in our hands as a generation of new reformers to keep the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in the darkness. So what we're we're doing here this morning, what we're doing is not merely church history, learning a few dates and some inspirational stories that you can either take or leave. Rather, what this little series is, this is a fork in the road for you. What this is, is an urgent call for each one of you to take up the torch of the gospel, to join the long line of men and women who gave everything so that the gospel could reach every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That is what this is. Because they say, don't they? They say that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But I say, If we forget the history of the Reformation, we will be doomed precisely because we don't repeat it. This morning we examine the life, the theology, the ministry, the impact of John Calvin, not to exalt John Calvin the man, but to exalt the God of John Calvin. Because if we see in the Bible what Calvin saw, If we see the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign, triune God who spoke it all into existence, if we see what Calvin saw, then more courage we will have for the mission to which we're called. Because I'll just tell you, in our media-saturated, inch-deep, mile-wide Disneyland of pseudo-Christianity that we live in, I'll just tell you, we need very badly the resounding voice of John Calvin because here is a man who had a reverence for the Word of God. Here is a man who trembled before the Word of God. Here is a man who had a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. And the point is that is worthy of our emulation. So here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see the life, the ministry, the impact of John Calvin unfolding in three parts. Number one, I want to unfold again a brief history of the Reformation, what it is and John Calvin's role in it. Number two, I'm going to give you an abbreviated biography of Calvin's life to see the ripple effects of a man uh, whose life we can still feel even to this very day. And number three, I want to look at three chain reactions that the majesty of God had on the life and ministry of John Calvin. Because all of that we would do well to imitate. So here we go. Part one, a brief history of the Reformation and John Calvin's role in it. A brief history of the Reformation and John Calvin's role in it. Because, as I said last week, the the Reformation was not a single act 
led only by one man. Rather, the Reformation was a revolution. It was a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated revolution to bring the entirety of Christianity back under the supreme authority of the Word of God. Because again, for over a thousand years, spiritual darkness ruled over Europe. It personified the Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance ruled the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. Church tradition trumped divine truth. Personal holiness had been abandoned. The rotten stench of man-made tradition personified both pope and, and priest alike. And yet you know, you know, everything changed on October 31st, 1517. Why? Because a German monk named Martin Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors a document that exposed some of the most tragic, tragic practices and beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. And in that moment, everything changed. Why? Because Luther discovered through the rigorous study of the word of God that so much of what Rome had taught for centuries about salvation was not in the text. And again, we're not just talking about a few nitpicky little gripes here. There's no mountains being made of molehills here. Rather, Luther saw that so much of what Rome had taught about how to obtain salvation was not only not in the text, it was against the text. I said it last week, for 10 long centuries, Europe shivered in the shadow of a cold Roman Catholic theology that taught that although salvation was purchased by Christ, it was earned by your works. In other words, the darkness of the dark ages was the disappearance of the doctrine that salvation was by God's sovereign grace alone. And if you really boil it down, what was the burr under the saddle of the reformers? What was the bee in the reformers' bonnet, if you will? What it was about, what it was all about, ultimately, in the end, was a glory of God issue. That's what it was about. See, the Reformation, the issue for the Reformations was not first justification or priestly abuses, or purgatory, or transubstantiation, or prayers to the saints, or papal authority, or worship of Mary, although all those things are really, really serious, and they do come up for discussion. But the jugular vein issue for the reformers was that the glory of God had been extinguished. And you see that right there is what defined John Calvin and the Reformation more than anything else, namely the matchless worth and beauty of the glory of God that shines forth from the pages of Scripture. That is the issue. And as I said, Calvin certainly didn't start the Reformation. Not even close, but he did pour gasoline on that fire, very combustible theological gasoline that led even to the very explosion of the modern missions movement itself. And as you might have guessed, Calvin had his friends throughout the centuries, and he most certainly has had his foes. Martin Luther, who was 26 years older than Calvin, stood in awe of him. Melanchthon, Luther's pastoral assistant, simply called him the theologian, which I think meant he was the greatest theologian on the planet. Benjamin Warfield, uh, revered scholar of the 1800s, said, no man has had a profounder sense of God than John Calvin. Spurgeon, who would never say it if he didn't believe it, said Calvin propounded truth more clearly than any other man who ever breathed, knew more of Scripture, and explained it more clearly than anyone in human history. Another author said, apart from the biblical authors themselves, Calvin stands as the most influential minister of the word the world has ever seen. Now that's some pretty high praise. And whether you agree with all that or not, time will tell. But others have been less complimentary. 
In fact, fewer people have more enemies than John Calvin. For instance, if you do a search on, of John Calvin on YouTube, you'll find the following unflattering titles, things like How to Defeat Calvinism and Why I'm Not a Five-Point Calvinist and Burn in Hell, John Calvin, Burn in Hell, and Sovereign Grace is a Heresy. One writer in the 1950s called Calvin withdrawn, embittered, an unfeeling sick man, and a dictator. Oscar Pfister, who was a friend of Sigmund Freud, said that Calvin was a compulsive neurotic with diabolical traits. Even in his own day, his own day, a former reformer who recanted his faith and went back to the Catholic Church called Calvin ambitious, ambitious, presumptuous, arrogant, and cruel. He said that Calvin was a greedy man, an imposter who claimed he could resurrect the dead, and a homosexual, an outcast of God. I mean, I mean, you're going to stick it to a guy. You're going to say things like that. That's pretty cutthroat stuff right there. And yet I think these people are missing something. In fact, I know they're missing something because there is a reason why Calvin is read more widely than any other Christian outside of the New Testament. His commentaries are a verse-by-verse shopping spree of the endless treasure of Holy Scripture. His, his most famous theology book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, remain to this very day one of the deepest reservoirs of theological gold ever written by anyone. His sermons, his sermons, this guy did expository verse-by-verse preaching before it was cool. And his preaching, straight from the Greek and Hebrew, by the way, unleashed a movement of God that to this day we can still feel even at this very moment. So I guess you can say that Calvin has made an impression, not just on me, but even on the very face of Western civilization itself. And I really believe that once we get to know the man, we're not only going to be filled with a humble appreciation of him, but I think we're going to find his zeal, his passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things to be irresistibly contagious. Which brings us to part two, an abbreviated biography of John Calvin. An abbreviated biography of John Calvin. Because I don't know how much you know about uh, medieval Europe, but the world into which John Calvin was born was nothing short of brutal and barbaric. I mean, the planet, I mean, if you think it's bad now, the planet in which he lived was a very extremely unpleasant place to live. There was no sewer system, no piped water, no central heating, no refrigeration, no electric lights, no water heaters, no washers, dryer stoves, ballpoint pens, computers, or motors of any kind whatsoever. Life was harsh and dark and brutal and painful, and not only was it brutal and, and harsh, it was violent and immoral. And into this world, John Calvin was born. July 10th, 1509 in Noyon, France, about 71 miles north of Paris. In that day, America wasn't a thing. The Pope ruled the roost. And Luther was still about six years away from discovering the gospel again in the book of Romans. And what's funny about John Calvin's life is that on the surface, at least, uh, his life is not the stuff that biographies are made of. In other other words, at first, his his life is not the the kind of stuff of high drama. And in other words, he, he, he did normal pastor stuff week by week. He shepherded a flock. He preached sermons. He wrote books. He defended the gospel. He trained pastors. And the next morning, he got up and he did it all again. Wash rinse, preach, repeat. See, nothing super interesting about that, except, except those very basic pastoral duties, him doing theology, him doing ministry in the trenches of the local church was the very thing used by God to change even the face of human history Itself, which speaks not to the power of the man, but to the power of the word through the man. And we know virtually nothing about his childhood, what cartoons he watched, the girl that he took to the prom, his favorite dessert, what his favorite baseball team was. If there was baseball, then we all know who it would be. It would be, of course, the Boston Red Sox, but we don't know any of that. 
We don't know any of that stuff. What we do know, what we do know is that his father, who was uh, bossy and strict when he was 14 years old, his father sent him to the University of Paris to study theology, which at that time was completely untouched by the Reformation, completely buried, immersed in medieval Catholic doctrine and theology. Five years later, Calvin is 19 years old. Something happens behind the scenes. His father runs afoul of the Catholic Church, gets embittered against the Catholic Church, tells Calvin that he has to stop studying theology immediately, and then he needs to go to law school and become a lawyer, which he obediently did. So for the next three years, he went to law school at the University of Orleans in Bourget, and yet it was not the law, but it was literature that was his first love. So keep in mind here, Calvin is not converted. He, he is not an authentic Christian in any sense of the term. He is a fairly nominal Roman Catholic with all of its theological baggage, and what he loved was literature. Seneca, Plato, the Iliad, Odyssey. He became an expert in Greek. He mastered philosophy. The great classics of, of, of the centuries had stolen his affections. And so when his father died in 1531, Calvin, at the age of 21, saw that as his freedom to now leave his law practice and to become a teacher, a professor in the university, a secular scholar of secular literature, living the professor's dream, writing books, teaching classes, summers off, hoping to, hoping to acquire tenure as a professor. When all of a sudden, when all of a sudden Calvin and the Reformation had a head-on collision. All of a sudden the shockwaves of the Reformation reached him in France and what he heard he did not like. In fact, he hated it at first. But something happened in this man. Something changed in this man. Something deep and sovereign and profound about seven years after his conversion, listen to what he says about what went through his head when he, heard, when he heard the Reformation doctrines and the doctrines of grace in particular. He essentially says, hey, there I was, professor of the university, minding my own business as a good Catholic, when all of a sudden, a very different form of doctrine started up, he said. Not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought it back to its fountain, to its original purity. At first I was offended by the novelty, and yet I lent an unwilling ear, and at first I confess, strenuously and passionately resisted to confess that my whole life long I had been in ignorance and in error. At last I at length perceived Get this now. As if light had suddenly broken in on my soul, in what sty of error I had wallowed, and how much pollution and impurity I had thereby contracted, being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen, I made it my first business to betake myself to your way, O God, condemning my past life, but not without groans and tears. He said, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued my soul and brought my mind into a teachable frame. And having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress in godliness and in the doctrines which I had at first passionately resisted. <laughs> Did you hear that? I mean, it's kind of eloquent, but, but do, do you hear what he says? The diagnosis of his own soul was that God supernaturally broke into his life with supernatural light by which his will was subdued and what awakened in him the very faith with which he placed in Christ. In other words, what happened to him was regeneration. What happened to him was that he was born again. What that's called is irresistible grace. In other words, fast bound in sin and nature's night, 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is what happened to Galvin. (laughs) And so I think it's ironic and even a little hilarious that the very doctrines for which Calvin came most to be hated, like unconditional election, like particular atonement, like irresistible grace, were the very doctrines he himself hated the most before his own conversion. I think it's very hilarious to me. So sometime between 1531 and 1533, Calvin not only became a Christian, he went all the way and he became a reformer. And here's how we know. Here, here's, here's what happened. It's a very strange and in one sense kind of bizarre story because all of a sudden he just appears on the scene as a reformer. Here's what happened. He's teaching at the University of Paris and to open the winter semester, his friend, the rector of the university, a guy named Nicholas Kopp, preaches the inaugural sermon to the students to open the winter university. That's what you did, apparently, in those days. At every university, you, you preached a sermon to begin the semester. His friend, Nicholas Kopp, preached the sermon. And it sounded so Luther-like. It sounded so, so Reformation-like, so Reformed in its theology. And it got everyone so riled up, so offended, that not only the parliament of the city, but even the king of France himself got involved. And they issued an arrest warrant. And guess whose names were on the warrant? Nicholas Kopp and John Calvin. John Calvin didn't preach the sermon, but somehow he was affiliated with this Reformation movement. And so he and Nicholas Kopp, they had to run, they had to flee from their lives, not only from the city, but even the country itself, probably to escape definitely prison and most certainly a violent execution. So sometime between 1531 and 1533, Calvin became a fully devoted to the cause of the Reformation, all because the word of God pierced his soul with supernatural light. And what that did in his life was set a trajectory for his life and his ministry. What it unleashed in his life was not only a passion to preach, which he most certainly did, but what it did is it gave him the unshakable conviction that the word of God is the instrument of God to break open the world. And I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that the word of God, like Calvin, that the word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. I hope you believe that that if you want to hear God speak, all you have to do is read Holy Scripture. I hope you believe, like Calvin, that we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because that is proceeded from Him and has nothing of man contaminated in it. I hope you believe that all the hope and the power you need to solve the deepest complexities of the soul are found in the pages of Holy Scripture. I hope, I really hope you believe that because that is true. And so the question is not to guilt you, but even to entice you, the question is, what is your relationship to Holy Scripture right now? Do you have that IV drip line relationship to the Holy Scripture where you are always nourished, always watered by the Word of God? Is it for you like Psalm 1, your meditation day and night? Psalm 19, more precious than gold, than fine gold and sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Is it for you? Is it for you? Like the Psalms talk about, I rejoice in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Because I just want you to know that every single issue you could possibly face in this life are not only diagnosed by the Word of God, but cured by the Word of God. So here's Calvin on the run like some bandit, like some refugee, because that's exactly what he is. And he flees to Basel, Switzerland. Now, he's got a plan. He's got a wonderful plan that he's made for his own life. And the plan for his own life is that he is going to be a literary scholar of theology. 
That's what he's going to do. He's going he's to get a nice cushy office somewhere. He's going to get a bunch of books. He's going to write. He's going to read. He's going to study. He's going to publish books. That is the wonderful plan for his life. He's going to be quiet behind the scenes writing theology books. And he spent, he spent uh, two, three years, three years in exile in Basel. And two remarkable things happened during those three years. In fact, so remarkable that in one way or another, we feel the effects of these three years in Basel. Not even kidding. Two things happened. Number one, here he is in a foreign country on the run for his life, right? He's this this rogue, rebel, in mortal danger. And guess what he does with his free time? He learns Hebrew. That's what he did with his time as a refugee seeking religious asylum in Basel. He learned Hebrew. Who does that? Why would he do that? Because because he knew that handling the sacred text of Holy Scripture is the most significant occupation on the face of the planet. And so if you're going to preach it or if you're going to write about it, you had better get the text right. Number two, in 1536, he published the first edition of of this book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And he published it, by the way, at the age of 26. (laughs) So I don't know what you were doing at the age of 26, but I was not writing weighty theological works that were so stinking good that people read them 500 years after you're dead. I was not occupied in writing things like this. And, And yet the question is, what is this book all about? A theology book? to be sure, and a very thick one at that, but not just a theology book. You see, Calvin wrote this book with blood on his hands. I want you to listen to to his own account of why he wrote this book. Again, he's in in Basel, he's hiding, he's he's in mortal danger, on the run for his life, and listen to his explanation for why he wrote a thousand-page book on theology. He said, lo, While I lay hidden at Basel and known only to few people, many faithful and holy persons were burned alive in France. It appeared to me that unless I opposed the perpetrators to the utmost of my ability, my silence could not be vindicated from the charge of cowardice and treachery. In other words, here I am living in ease, living in safety while my comrades are being burned alive in France. I've got to do something. This, he says, was the consideration which induced me to publish my Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was published, listen carefully, with no other design than that men might know what was the faith held by those I saw so basely and wickedly defamed. In other words, do you hear the reason why he wrote this book? This book was forged in the fires of burning flesh. In other words, he wrote this thousand book, thousand page book on theology to explain why the truth that we hold dear is worth fighting and dying and being burned alive for. So here's Calvin, an intent on his living his literary cushy life as a scholar, writing books, defending the Reformation. And by the way, he never returned to France. He never went back. It was too Catholic, too dangerous, too hostile to the Reformation. And so he's decided that he's going to spend the rest of his life in Strasbourg, Germany, 85, 85 more, uh, 84 miles north of Basel. And he's going to engage in his literary life, cushy, mushy life, writing theology. And yet that life of ease and comfort was not to be. Because as he sets out on his journey to go north to Strasbourg, a war breaks out, and it's so bad, he has to do an inconvenient detour 157 miles south, the opposite direction, to a place called Geneva. (laughs) A detour. A detour, ha. Ha. 
So here he is, he's, he's in, he's in uh, Geneva, and he's ready to go to Strasbourg. He still has this wonderful plan for his life, and he's hanging out sort of at a hotel, just sort of waiting for things to blow over, and a man named William Farrell, who was the fiery leader of the Reformation in that city, hears that Calvin is in Geneva, and he decides to pay him a little visit. And this visit to Calvin by William Farrell would not only change Calvin's life, it would not only change the history of Geneva, but it would even change the history of Western civilization itself. Like, like I'm serious. If you trace it back far enough, you'll be able to trace the fact that you believe in Christ today precisely because of the things that happened in Geneva, Switzerland, 500 years ago. And what Pharaoh gave Calvin to persuade him to stay in Geneva was less of an invitation, was less of a sales pitch and more of a rebuke, a threat, and a warning that if he didn't stay, and if he didn't stay and minister to the hundreds of French refugees that came over for asylum in Geneva, that God was going to curse him in his studies. Calvin said this about that conversation years later. He said, he said Pharaoh, who, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits. And finding that he gained nothing by polite entreaties, he proceeded to utter a condemnation that God would curse me in my retirement. So this thing went from zero to 60 in, in a real hurry here. And the tranquillities of the studies which I sought, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent, by his curse and condemnation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from my journey, which I had undertaken. He stayed, he didn't go, he unpacked his bags, and he stayed in Geneva, and he became a pastor <laughs> to hundreds of French refugees preaching, shepherding the flock, ministering the word of God to these people. And you see, the reason why I spend so much time on this issue in particular is because this moment in Calvin's life is a reminder to us of how much God loves us. Because how, how many times do we make these misguided plans for our lives we decide we're going to do these things with our lives and then our little plans don't work out and the first response in our hearts is to grumble against God as if his only agenda was to ruin our day. You see, God was in that passing moment in Calvin's life when he wanted to be an author in seclusion. God derailed his self-centered little plan because there were hundreds of people in Geneva who needed a pastor. And as a result, the ripple effects of his time in Geneva literally led to the salvation of millions. So how can it be that God would love us that much? that God would give a twit of care about those little, incidental, seemingly insignificant moments in our lives, just one moment of one hour, of one day, in one week, in one month, in one year, in one house, living on one street, in one neighborhood, in one city, in one state, in one part of the hemisphere, in one part of the globe, in one area of one little corner of the solar system, and there is God. God is there in that moment, governing and directing your life. See, the point is, don't interpret God by how you feel in the midst of your circumstances. Interpret God by his sovereign love by which he governs everything that comes to pass because you just can't see the big picture. And this was a theme in Calvin's life. When his baby son died, Two weeks after the baby was born in 1542, he said this to his friend Veret. He said, the Lord, notice to whom he gives the credit. The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our baby son. But he himself is a father and knows best what is good for his children. 
That's a theme in Calvin's life, very badly needed theme today in 21st century America, namely the sweet submission to the sovereign hand of God in every single area of life. Calvin stayed in Geneva. He left for a while, but came back and he eventually ministered there until his death at 55 years of age in 1564. And it was hard and brutal and agonizing and painful and excruciating. His wife, Idolette, died in 1549. Some of his children died. He suffered from crippling migraines that could only be uh, managed with a very strict diet of one meal per day. He's very gone, very, very gone, very thin. He had colic so bad that he would cough up blood. He had malaria. He had arthritis in his feet so bad that sometimes he had to be carried to the pulpit. He had hemorrhoids, which is no laughing matter, apparently, in those days. Uh, He had kidney stones so excruciating that they would cut him open from the inside out, if you know what I mean. And he endured all of it without the slightest bit of pain medication, not even ibuprofen for crying out loud. He just had to take it. And his sufferings would be one thing if everybody loved him, if he was the star of the show, if everyone just thought the world of John Calvin, but they didn't. They didn't think that about him. Endless, constant, bickering, infighting, hostile persecution, harassment, threats from mobs, people leaving the church, grumbling and complaining for his doctrine and theology. People would barricade his house and threaten him. You come out today, we're going to kill you. We're going to throw you in the river. People would come by in the middle of the night and shoot muskets in front of his house. The ultra-liberal leaders of the city were a thorn in his flesh, constantly trying to control how he ran the church, and they would enforce penalties upon him if he didn't do what they wanted him to do. And on top of that, Calvin had very little regard for his own health. After his wife died, he pushed himself to the health-cracking rigors of severity, sleeping two, three, four hours a night. I mean, he was always a bow tightly strung. He never stopped. He never took a break. He preached 10 times a week. Lectured three times in theology at the academy, visited the sick, discipled people every day. He wrote letters every week to persecuted believers in France, many of whom were, were, became martyrs. And on top of that, he was writing books and sermons and tracts and theological tomes that still exist to this day, 500 years later. This man was the essence of productivity. And it killed him. It killed him. I mean, no wonder he died at 55 years old. And yet, I guess the saying is true. The light that burns twice as bright is the light that burns half as long. And what a light John Calvin was. I mean, whether you realize it or not, the warmth from his legacy still heats our lives even to this very day. And yet, you see, what it was that produced in him that invincible constancy, that lion-hearted courage, that rugged perseverance that kept him going through crippling pain and through persecution and and all the hostile people in his life. What sustained him was the jaw-dropping majesty of God that he saw in the pages of Holy Scripture. And there are three chain reactions that the majesty of God had in his life. And that brings us to part three. Three chain reactions that the majesty of God had in his life. Maybe two. Number one, the majesty of God in Scripture unleashed in John Calvin. Don't miss this now. This may not resonate with you at first, but but I, I need it to. The majesty of God in Scripture unleashed in him a passion to preach expositionally the Word of God as the center of his life and ministry. The majesty of God unleashed in him a passion to preach and exposit the word of God. Why? Why? Because he understood that the instrument that God uses to break open the world, the instrument that God uses to save his elect in every nation and to advance the global cause of Jesus Christ is the word, is the truth, nothing but the truth and the whole truth. So help us God. He said this to to pastors advising them in his day and and pastors of today would do well to listen. He says, let 
the pastors boldly declare all things by the word of God. Let them flee from the power, the fame, the glory, and the excellence that the world gives, and let them give place to the divine majesty of this word. Let them edify the body of Christ, to be sure. Let them devastate Satan's reign, absolutely. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if need be, but let them do it all according to the word of God. I am not Calvin and I will never be Calvin, but I consider myself an heir of his legacy and I will follow his example and preach until the end. Number two, I won't say much about this um, for the sake of time, but the majesty of God unleashed in him a passion to train men for ministry, to train pastors, theologians, and missionaries. He trained women too, don't get me wrong. He pastored the whole flock and he did it well, but he understood that one of the means to the Great Commission getting finished was the training of men for ministry. In 1547, the King of France issued a declaration saying that if anyone was found participating in Reformation activity, they would be burned alive without appeal. No trial, you die. The next year, After that declaration in 1558, Calvin started an academy training men for ministry who then became martyrs in France. In fact, so many martyrs sent from his school, that school became known as the School of Death. And I hope you remember our 20-year plan to change the world because on the list is a pastoral ministry training program to train men for ministry. And we're going to do it, not because Calvin did it, but because that's what the scriptures tell us to do. Number three, the majesty of God unleashed in Calvin a global missionary vision to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. The majesty of God unleashed in Calvin a a vision to reach the ends of the earth with, with the gospel, which surprises most people that Calvin cared about the nations, that he cared about missions, that he cared about evangelism, and yet it doesn't surprise me at all. Why? Because the more closely you stick to what the text says, the more passion you will have to proclaim it to the nations. And you see, people just assume that because Calvin was a Calvinist, whatever that means, that surely, surely that he had no zeal for the global cause of Jesus Christ. And yet I assure you, the opposite is the case. For instance, one church historian who really should have checked their facts said this, said, we miss in the reformers not only missionary action, but even the idea of missions. Why? Because the fundamental theological views of the doctrines of grace hindered them from giving their activity and their thoughts even a missionary direction. One writer in a major Christian denomination, very popular in this part of the country, said that Calvin's doctrine is logically anti-missionary and renders the Great Commission meaningless. Even a friend of mine, who I respect deeply, appreciate him very much, was a missionary to Kenya for years. When I asked him to teach a class on church history, he refused to teach on the Reformation because as he put it, the Reformers and the Reformation didn't do a thing for the Reformation or didn't do a thing for the Great Commission for 200 years. And foolishly, I believed him because I didn't know and he didn't know. And what most people don't know is that Geneva, Switzerland in Calvin's day was a launch site for global ministry. It was an epicenter for missionary activity. See, by Calvin's own writings, by his own missionary activity, he was profoundly pro-evangelism, pro-missions. I mean, think about it. Calvin wasn't Swiss, He was French. He lived in a foreign country, pastored a foreign flock in a foreign land, and he also mobilized hundreds, if not thousands of missionaries to go all over Europe to spread the cause of the Great Commission. I think we call that missions. In fact, most people have no idea that Calvin had a burning zeal to reach Brazil with the gospel. Most people don't know that. 
He wanted to reach Brazil with the gospel. He saw that there was a need. He was trying to, it actually didn't work out through no fault of his own, but he, for years, he was trying to mobilize and organize and send a a group of people to Brazil to reach the nations there with the gospel. You see, he understood. And here's, here's something you have to understand. Calvin was passionate about missions, not despite his theology, but precisely because of his theology. You see, he understood that God has his elect in every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and all we've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately proclaiming the gospel to everyone. He understood that doctrines like unconditional election and, and, and irresistible grace, in particular atonement, doesn't make evangelism meaningless. It guarantees that our evangelism cannot fail. And you have to understand, Calvin's doctrine, it literally was the thing that unleashed the entire modern missions movement. It really did. To prove it to you, William Carey to India, Henry Martin to Persia, Adoniram Judson to Burma, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, and the entire uh, Great Awakening of the 18th century, all of it awakened and kindled by the majestic vision of God that Calvin preached day after day after day. In other words, these men were captivated by the doctrines of sovereign grace. Or if you had to put it in its most crude terms, all of those men who are arguably some of the best missionaries in history, all of them were Calvinists. So the lesson here for us, I'm really close to being done here. The lesson here is not that we proclaim ourselves Calvinists. I don't care if, in fact, I prefer that we not call ourselves that. It's not the lesson for us. The lesson for us at Christ Community is that if we want this church to be everything you've ever dreamed it could be in your wildest imagination, we have to make the word of God the supreme and central place in our life and in our affections. I want this church to be a haven, preparing vessels, not for the cushy yacht life of American luxury, but I want us to prepare battleships armed with the gospel that go out into the storm-tossed, shark-infested ocean of humanity. And I am persuaded that if we put all of the eggs of our hope into the basket of the power of God's word, that is exactly what we're going to be because we are the new reformers. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we celebrate in, in one sense the lives of so many who came before us, the shoulders upon whom we stand. Oh Lord, we forget, we, we are very myopic in our lives and we forget that, that the very gospel that we believe in to this day, the sound doctrine that we hold dear, that we just, think, that we just believe without even thinking, we forget, oh Lord, that it sailed down to us on an ocean of blood. Oh Lord, help us to count the cost, to savor, to count as precious the truth, the truth of your word. And I pray, oh Lord, that you would unleash in this church a zeal, a zeal, oh Lord, to proclaim it to our own kids. Oh, let us be Deuteronomy 6 dads. Oh, I plead with you, oh Lord, that us dads, we would lead our children in that way and that moms, you would give them the strength to do the same and that we would lead our families in your word so that the next generation to come up after us would hold fast the banner of your word. Oh Lord, may we be reformers, new reformers in a hostile and dangerous 21st century, holding the line with tears in our eyes for sound doctrine, always and only for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.